0: Welcome to the Display the Gospel podcast, a place where we will explore topics related to the Christian life in order to demonstrate and declare the gospel as followers of Jesus. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in today. My name is Brett, and this is just a brief introduction. Today's episode is a lot longer, as you can tell, and it's actually going to be a sermon that I preached at my church in Des Moines, Iowa. And the main thrust of this sermon is directed at Christians, and it's from Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. And the main uh, point in that sermon is that we are supposed to be one unified spiritual family that is sent on mission in our world to be agents of reconciliation to those who do not believe in God. So... For those of you who are listening that are Christians, I think it'll be very helpful for you as you hear a text where my goal in that sermon is, as you'll hear in the intro, is to teach the Bible and through the lens of Scripture look at the world rather than look at the world and then look at the Bible. And so I hope that it's helpful to you. Uh, There's some things mentioned in it that have to do directly with racism, but that is not the thrust of the entirety of the sermon. So I hope it's helpful. And I hope it's edifying to you. Uh, If you have any questions or comments, you can always reach me at www.DisplayTheGospel.com. And I would love to connect with you. Enjoy. Good morning. Good to see you, church. Uh, my name is Brett Risley. I'm the Associate Pastor of Discipleship and Adult Ministries. Uh, glad that you're here this morning. Uh, Pastor Mike uh, is gone. He'll be, he'll be back next Sunday. And last week, we heard from Pastor Adam. And I just want to say, you know, it's hard work preaching. Uh, it's, it may seem easy to stand up and talk about stuff. That's one thing. I could do that all day. Uh, But it's a whole other thing to prepare and to teach the Bible to people, because that brings a whole other level of authority, a whole other level of accountability, a whole other level of seriousness and weight and gravity. And so uh, I just want to say thank you, Pastor Adam, for being faithful to the text last week. It's not easy, and even though we joke about third string, second string, the bullpen, you know that. We joke, but anybody is qualified to teach a text because the text is what gives the authority, not us. And so today, that's my hope as well. As we look at the Bible, it's not about me being super smart or super awesome. It's about the authority of God's word, and by the grace of God, trying my best as a broken human to communicate the authority of God's truth to God's people. Um, And so last week, uh, we've been doing this two part series. This is week two of two. Last week, Adam talked about uh, gospel reconciliation, how man can be reconciled to God, the most important reconciliation that there is to talk about. That's our vertical reconciliation. How does a man that's broken and born into sin become right with a perfect and holy and just God that demands righteousness? And we learned that that's by the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross. And he did a great job preaching that. So thank you, Adam. This week, we're talking about the horizontal relationship of reconciliation. Now that we've been reconciled to God by Jesus for the purposes of salvation and adoption, now we can turn our attention to see that we've been reconciled to one another by the blood of the cross. For the purposes of unity, identity in the church, and gospel witness. And so we're going to look at those things today. There's three big overarching truths that we're going to look at today. But before we get there, I want to give you a disclaimer because the word reconciliation right now in our culture might be a word that you're very curious about. Like, I wonder what he's going to say. And I just want to say that my main priority, my main objective this morning is to teach the text in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. That's my main priority, is to teach that text and what it means, not to necessarily talk about current events. However, this text and what it teaches and what God says about his church and his people in this broken world has radical implications for current events. But I want you to know my heart and to know my focus and to know that that's the way we ought to approach the Bible. We look at the world through the lens of Scripture. So today we're looking at the Bible And as we look through the Bible, we'll see our world differently. That's my hope this morning. Are you on board with that today? Awesome. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be reading 11 through 22, but I'm going to focus primarily on 14 to 22. But Ephesians 2, um, where you got your device or you're online watching us, thank you for joining us there as well. But Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, let's read this together, then we're going to pray, and then we'll begin to break it down. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. This is the whole context today. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's good news. For he himself is our peace. He who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we... As we come to this text, there's a lot here. There's more than I could cover in a day or two. And so I pray that you would give me the wisdom to know exactly what to speak and when to speak it. I pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice today, Holy Spirit. That we would have the courage and the will to obey whatever it is that he says to us. And that we would live in our world with a right understanding of the gospel, of reconciliation. How that affects our relationship to you, Father how that affects our relationship to brothers and sisters in Christ, and how that affects our relationship to the lost and hurting world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. So where we're going this morning is we're going to see three overarching truths that kind of break up this passage, okay? And the three overarching truths are very simple, and they're up on the screen for you. We are one body, we are a spiritual family, And in light of those things, part of being a spiritual family that's one is also being agents of reconciliation in the world. So those are the three big pieces we're going to see in this text. And so let's jump right in at verse 14. We are one body, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We could do a whole sermon series on this verse, (laughs) but we don't have that kind of time. So Jesus is our peace. It's the very first thing we need to see in the first part of verse 14. How many people do you know in the world need peace right now? Lots. Who, who brings that peace? Is it you? Is it me? Is it the next thing? It's Jesus Christ. He is our peace. The chaos that everyone is looking to solve and to fix and to nullify, that's only going to happen in a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is our peace. And specifically, as Paul is talking here in this verse, he says, Jesus is our self. He is our peace. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, I know last week, Pastor Adam talked about this and showed you this picture, but it's worth showing again. Because in his flesh, his death on the cross has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. What does that mean? Well, We're not exactly sure, scholars disagree on exactly what Paul means by that phrase, dividing wall of hostility, but there's at least three fairly obvious things we can at least wrap our heads around to say, these are probably three very realistic things he probably meant. The first one is that wall that you see surrounding this temple area, this is Herod's temple in the time of Jesus, and that wall that surrounds that temple was called, it was basically the area called the court of the Gentiles. And so in that wall, there was little spaces where you could kind of go through and people could come and go through it. And it wasn't real high. It was probably maybe knee high. So it was just a small partition or so, waist high maybe. But the point was, it was a wall that said, there's some separation here. And the main point is Jesus is trying to say, or Paul's trying to say, as he's writing to Jews, he's writing to Gentiles in this letter to the church at Ephesus that would have been circulated through that whole area. He's trying to say that Jesus' death has removed any division or separation or segregation between Jew and Gentile. And so this court of the Gentiles wall thing that you see was serious. Listen to this. This is an inscription from a non-believing historian who lived at the time of Jesus. His name was Josephus. He said that there's inscriptions that were hung along even intervals of this wall. And this is what the inscription said. No man of another race is to proceed within the partition and the enclosing wall about the sanctuary. Anyone arrested will have himself to blame for the penalty of death, which will be imposed as a consequence. You want to talk about segregation? It started here. Jew and Gentile were not allowed to hang out. And if you crossed that wall and you were not a Jew, the penalty was death. And they, it was common knowledge. Layers of access. To God's presence. That's what we're talking about. Layers of elite access to God. Jews were the most chosen, holy people. Gentiles were considered these heathenistic, pagan outsiders, another race, another ethnicity. Talk about segregation. So that's one of the main things Paul's probably referring to. The second thing he's probably referring to is the Mosaic law. With all the rules and all the things that Jews had to do to be clean, they had to wash their hands, all the things they ate, um, all the things about circumcision, there were so many things that the Jews did. They had over 600 laws that they had to abide by. And talk about that kind of a separation of, well, we are a people and we have all these rules and look at us keep all these rules and aren't we just awesome? And then you've got these Gentiles who aren't even the people of God who abide by no rules. Talk about lawless men and these outsiders, these heathens, just horrible, nasty, disgusting people. That's the kind of tension that would have been very real between Jew and Gentile at that day. So Paul said that's also probably broken down. And then the obvious, ethnic division. Jew and Gentile were different ethnicities. Let that soak in for a second. They were different ethnicities. There was a division there. You can't go here. You can't go there. You have to sit here. You can't sit there. Why? Because you're a different ethnicity than me. So we see racism begins in times of Jews and Gentiles, but the main point that Paul is trying to help the church see, he's trying to teach the church in Ephesus, remember the cross of Christ has destroyed all of that. The cross of Christ has nullified all of those man-made human divisions of separation and segregation. Jesus has destroyed it. He's broken it all down. So I hope you see what's going on here. Jesus is very much concerned about how you and I and how his people and all people relate to each other and have access to God. And so, how does Jesus destroy this division? How does it actually work? Well, look at verse 15 and 16 again. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that's probably referring to the Mosaic law, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both. You hear that language? Both. Us. Communal. Reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. See, this deeply ingrained ethnic division was religious, it was political, and it was cultural. Is that not any different than our world today? Is ethnic division in our world not religious, political, and cultural and are all tied together? They are. It was no different in this time. Gentiles were heathens and pagans and had no real God. The Jews from politics perspective had all the laws kind of catered to them and their beliefs. Culturally, the Gentiles were outsiders. And if you want to read something about this later this week, read Acts 10 and Acts 11 when the Holy Spirit falls on Gentiles for the first time and the church is basically embracing Gentiles officially for the first time, Peter goes to Cornelius' house. He shares the gospel. The Holy Spirit falls. All these Gentiles are coming to faith. Peter's like, we need to baptize these people. They do. They're into the church. Peter goes back and gets reprimanded by other Jewish Christians saying, what were you doing eating at a Gentile's house? What do you mean Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit? See, that was foreign to them. They thought that being a part of God's family was only for one ethnicity. Jesus says, no, there's only one human race. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So notice the phrase, he made one new man in place of the two. Take two, bring it together. What does reconciliation mean? It means taking two things that were not previously together and you put them back together. One coming back together, two from one. And so Jesus destroys hostility and division, but he also creates. He creates a new earthly and corporate identity known as the church. He destroys all that division. He destroys all the hostility, and he's creating and building now a unified corporate identity where we are the church. Jew and Gentile get to be the church. Doesn't matter what you look like. Doesn't matter where you come from. We are the church together, one united people. We see this expressed in Galatians 3.28, when Paul also says, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are all, how many? One, one. not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not nine, not a thousand, not thirty thousand. We are all one in Christ. And the implications for this today I hope are obvious. <laughs> Stop building walls. Stop putting up fences between other people that are not like you. Whether that's education, your finances, the side of town you live on, the education you have or don't have, the color of your skin, the color of your hair, the size of your body, whatever, your theological preferences, your political opinions. Stop building walls. Stop building fences. Because when we do that, what does that do? That creates division. That creates hostility. And what did Jesus die for? He died for the nullification of division and hostility. Here's a question I want you just to think about. I know I've done it in my life. It's not something I'm proud of, but think about this for a second. You don't need to answer this, obviously, out loud. It's rhetorical. How many times in your life have you intentionally or unintentionally built walls that Jesus died to destroy with other people? Are you trying to resurrect walls Jesus died to destroy? I hope not. I know that I have, and I pray that we as a church would be a people that are in the business of following Jesus's path in building unity, not division. And so this gospel centered reality is so relevant to us in our world today, is it not? It seems like what the one of the most important things that we can see from this is he's breaking down in his flesh. Remember, it's not just like he literally took a caterpillar in and bulldozed a bunch of bricks. Yay, way to go, Jesus. No, no. He broke this down in his flesh through the cross. That's death. That's substitutionary atonement. That's redemption. All of it for you and for me. And so what we need to understand, church, this morning is that Jesus bled and died to destroy that type of hostility. Jesus bled and died to destroy the us versus them mentality. How many of us know a us versus them situation in our world today? Jesus died to destroy that. When we come to the foot of the cross, guess what? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nobody comes from an easier path or a harder path. It's all level. There's no, you get to come in a special door to have special access to Jesus. You have to come through the general admission door. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All are sinners, all are broken, all in our need in redemption and of grace, and all of us come to the cross with the same need. All of us that have been redeemed have been redeemed only because Jesus died and his grace is upon your life. Jesus' death has removed all the barriers to our unity, and we as a church I hope, are embracing this new standard of living with other people, that we are not hung up on our ages, our appearances, our intelligence, our political persuasions, our social class, our ethnicities, our theological opinions. We're not hung up on those things. What we are hung up on is this new standard of unity, a new normal in the church, one banner united under Christ. Is that reflecting your heart towards your brothers and sisters this morning? Because if it's not, our world will see a very broken picture of the gospel. Because our unity, even amongst our diversity, a beautiful thing, as I see all your faces, there's a lot of beautiful people here. Our unity in the midst of our diversity displays to the unbelieving world that true reconciliation is actually possible. True reconciliation with one another and with God is actually possible, and the world can hopefully look at our church and see that, see that we are so different. Raise your hand if you know someone who's different than you in this room, right? Now look at that person and point. No, just kidding. (laughs) We are so different. Don't point at me. (laughs) Thank you. That's fair. So we are all different, yet we have unity. We can, together, it's not about our differences, I love how in our prayer time this morning, a lot of what we were talking about today in the sermon was in our prayer time. We were already praying about this. I believe God is working in our church. I believe he is moving us to unity. I believe he's moving us to unity and not just in the church together, but a unity about our mission, about why we exist on this earth. And I'm so thankful to see and hear that. But the sad reality is that our world is marked by division and hostility about everything, isn't it? Everything. Whether you're a Mac user or a PC user. There's division, isn't there? Oh, man, those Mac guys, they just think they're the best in the world. And then there's those PC guys who are like, but it works better than a Mac, you know, and all these other things. And before you stone me, you know, I have both, okay? So I have both. I have a Mac, I have a PC, so I'm riding the fence, okay? Whether it's that, whether it's Iowa versus Iowa State, okay? We don't want to get there, I know, it's fine. Or Nebraska, who wants to talk about the Huskers, right? Yeah, okay, a couple of us, right? Some teams are better than the other. It's okay, we're not going to go there either. But anyways, those are silly divisions, right? But we have them, right? And even sometimes those silly divisions turn into ridiculous division, don't they? But then we've got real serious division in our world. Division, hostility about race. Division and hostility about COVID-19 and masks and solutions. Division and hostility about politics, end times, end times prophecies and how it's all going to end. Division hostility about law enforcement and police, abortion, human rights, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, all of these things. You pick anything in our world, there's division and there's hostility. Is there not? And unfortunately, what do all of those things have in common? All those things that I just named, and there's more, all of those things have in common a division and a hostility from one person to another person. It's personal. Whether we mean to make it that or not, it is. There's division and hostility from one human being to another human being. Now, why does that matter? That might seem like an obvious observation, but there's a problem there. And I'm going to talk about that here for just one second because it grieves the heart of God. And so while I don't have time to address all the things that I just listed real fast that are division and hostility things in our world, I want to take one quick little rabbit trail, if you will allow me to talk about one, because we see it in the text, okay? We've already talked about it. I've already used the R word, okay? Racism. It was already there. Jew and Gentile were different ethnicities. Same race, different color skin, different look, different region that they came from. Racism was the issue, Okay, And there's a whole system built around it. So from a biblical perspective, here's what I know about racism. And then I'm going to say a few things about history, which will be very short, which I don't know a lot of, to be honest with you. And I'm learning and growing and trying my best to understand history through the lens of Scripture. Okay, So from a biblical perspective, here's what I know. In Genesis 1:27, God created man in his own image, it says. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So why does this matter? Well, you guys are probably going, well, duh, God created us. What does that matter? Well, what it matters is the phrase, in the image of God. That phrase is Imago Day. I think that's up here, right? The Imago Day. How many of you have heard the Imago Day? Have you heard that language before? If not, then come and talk to me or go Google something on that. And I may mean, not Google it. Don't Google anything. That's a bad idea. <laughs> Study the Imago Dei. If you want some resources for that, holler at me. But the Imago Dei is the doctrine of man, of how we are made in the image of God, meaning we all are made in the likeness of God, not because we are God, not because we're going to become a God, but we're made in his image, we're made in his likeness. We reflect him to some degree. And because of that, we have more inherent value than, say, a dog or a cat or a lizard or whatever or a parrot or the rocks Or the trees. Those things are not made in the image of God. They don't have as much value and dignity than a human being does. And so as human beings, every human being was created by who? So do all human beings then possess that same level of equality and dignity and honor because they're made in the image of God? Yes or no? Great job. Good answer. But the implications of that in our world are radical right now. Because if every single human being has the same level of equality and dignity and honor, then we should treat people like that. People should have certain rights. They should have certain privileges. They have a certain love and care and compassion and concern, regardless of what they look like, regardless of what they speak, regardless of where they're from. It doesn't matter because if they're made in the image of God, they have just as much value as the next person, as me or you. So from a biblical perspective, church, there is only one race. It's the human race. I don't know about you, but I was never taught this stuff as a kid, so this is helpful. Was it helpful for you? There's only one human race. There isn't multiple races like we've actually been taught from the beginning of our country's history. Every Human being is a part of the human race. And the only difference between us is different things like hair color and skin color, which in the eyes of God are arbitrary. Whether I have brown hair, yellow hair, purple hair, or you have white skin, I have black skin, or any other combination, it's arbitrary in the eyes of God in terms of our value, our dignity, and our worth. Does that make sense? There is one human race. Now, obviously, there's diversity in how God makes us. But every human being traces their heritage back to the first parents, Adam and Eve. And all humanity came from them, did they not? There is one human race in the different color of melon and all the other things. Is it melon? Is that what it's called? That's in our skin? There. All those types of things are just simple differences that make us look different. But We are one race, one people. We're all created in God's image. In that Jew and Gentile tension, Jesus destroyed by the death on the cross. The dividing wall is destroyed. We heard from Pastor Adam last week. The veil of the temple was torn. The dividing wall is broken down. We read in this passage, we have equal access to God. You hearing all this equality language? In Christ, there's an equal access to the Father, the greatest access and privileges we could ever have. We can all have access to that in Christ. So that's what I know about racism from a biblical perspective in the time that I have today, which is not much. From a history perspective, I'm still learning a lot because I've not been taught a lot, haven't heard a lot. But here's one thing I do know from what little I've studied. And this might not set well with you, I don't know. And if it doesn't, please come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to any of you about these topics at any point in time over coffee or here in my office. But here's what I do know. The American white church needs to acknowledge that we have been, for the most part, fairly complicit in this conversation and not very courageous. And you can study American history and you can see that that's the track record. That's not everybody. That's the general scope. We've been very complicit. We have not spoken up. We've not always made the right choices. We've not always done the right thing. I think we need to acknowledge that and say that we can do better and say that as image bearers of God, we want to do better. We want to walk in the right path to understand and have a robust understanding of the Imago Dei so that when we relate to any human being, we see them with equal value, equal dignity, equal honor, equal love and compassion and concern. And all those things come first because they're made in the image of God, not because their skin is a different color, but they're made in the image of God. That comes first. And if we can lead and love people through the Imago Day, then we'll have a radical application of that too, where the church gets to love people and care for people and bring equality and, and, and justice and all these things that God desires. But we can't do that we don't understand the Imago Dei and how it affects who we are and how we relate to one another. So if you want to begin educating yourself, please do that. There's a lot of things out there. I have just started watching a documentary on Right Now Media that we provide to the church here. Right Now Media is a library of 20,000 online videos and Bible studies. I've been watching a documentary on there from biblical gospel perspective called The Color of Compromise. I would encourage you to watch it. It's very hard to watch it's very painful in some ways but it's very informative and very helpful you can study the history of america you can see that these things religion and politics and racism are always tied together unfortunately so listen ask questions be a learner be humble and together i believe as the church that we can walk forward in this in a better way than maybe we have in the past and one last question that I've been getting a lot that I also want to share with you that leads into why I think we need Jesus more than ever is the question is, when is racism going to end? And the short answer is that racism's not going to end. It's not going to end any more sooner than greed is going to end, adultery, divorce, lying, stealing, rape, pride, addiction. Why? Because all of those things are symptoms of a deeper-rooted core problem right you talk about the root and the fruit the root of the problem gives birth to fruit racism and all the sins that i've just named are a fruit of a deeper problem and the deeper problem is human depravity human depravity meaning all of us are born into a sinful world with a sin nature we are by nature sinful bent on doing our own thing and rebelling against God's design. Therefore, everything that we see in the world is coming out of a place of sin and brokenness and rebellion. And so all that manifests itself in different ways. And so racism's not going away until Jesus comes back. Divorce, adultery, killing, addiction, pride, those things aren't going away until Jesus comes again and completely redoes the whole thing and creates the heaven and the new earth, brings full and complete restoration So again, we have to think through the lens of Scripture on this. Racism is a sinful manifestation of a heart that is depraved and against God's design. In the same way that pride, addiction, greed, adultery are the same things of a sinful manifestation. Deeply rooted in depravity that's against God's design. So we have to think about these things biblically. How do I know that people are depraved? You may wonder, I'm not that bad and people can't be that bad. Well, the Bible does say that they are. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, as well as Romans 3 in many other places. But Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul also reminds the Ephesian church of what they used to be like and listen to his language about how they all used to be. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And hear this, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, it doesn't give you any warm, fuzzy feeling any more than it does for me to read that. But the Bible is very clear that we are all not born as children of God. We are born as children of wrath, and by the grace of God, he chooses and elects and saves some and adopts some to become children of God. And so if you hear teachers and preachers or even people like Oprah saying, we're all children of God, we're all going to make it when we get there, that's heresy, church. We are not all children of God. Only the people that have been redeemed and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and he saved them and adopted them become children of God. We read about that in John, even 1 John as well. And so, but again, remember, we are all image, we are all made in the image of God. but We are not all children of God. But by the grace of the gospel, God's design allows us to pursue Jesus and to become children of God. And so if we're all born in this way, well, this sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? Because we got God's design was that human beings would live in unity with him and unity with other people. That was God's design. Perfect harmony. But we all know that in Genesis 3, that harmony between God and man completely went out the window. Sin entered in the world and very clearly in the next few chapters of Genesis 4, 5, and 6 and onward, we see the brokenness between humans, of Cain killing Abel and all this history. We see that the brokenness between relationships horizontally and vertically is broken. Rebellion and sin have taken over and the sin and the rebellion leads to more brokenness. That's why we see what we see in the world today. It's not because necessarily that our nation is just off the rails. No, no, that's true, but it's true because of the root is depravity. So that's the bad news. And if you're wondering at this point, like, wow, this guy's really cheery today, really bringing us a fun message to just smile as we go find the buffet later, let me encourage you. One of the questions that I think is fair to ask is we look at our world, we have to be honest, we think biblically about it. We look at it and we go, wow, it's incredibly broken, is it not? It's incredibly sad, it's a incredibly ugly thing to look at. And we have to ask the question can the world even be fixed? Can the world even be fixed? A few weeks ago my son who's nine was working on a little lego ship and he likes to build things with legos and he'll sit with a box of legos and just build something just completely out of his imagination and so he came to us as we were having dinner kind of cleaning up and we were getting ready to play some games he said mom and dad look at this ship and he brings in this really cool looking ship and it's uh and i know i'm biased it's my son but this ship was legit you guys like it was intricate. It was symmetrical. Both sides had wings and different designs, and he had different guys in it. It had moving parts. I'm like, whoa. No instructions. Just thought it up and built it. And I'm like, dude, that is really cool. So he sits on the table. We're, we're getting ready to play some games. And then he kind of turns, and he's sitting at the table, and he kind of turns, and his elbow hits the ship. It falls onto the floor and shatters into a million pieces. Ooh. Yeah. And immediately I look at my son, and he's just just completely distraught, completely wrecked, eyes swelling up with tears. And I just felt like in that moment, God doesn't do this a lot, but I felt like in that moment, I felt like God just spoke to me these words to say to him that I feel like he wants me to also say to you this morning, is that I said, Jonathan, who built that ship? He said, well, I did. I said, then you're the only one That can fix this. There's hope. You were the designer, and the designer can fix the brokenness. In the same way that I encouraged my son to put together that little ship and put it all back together, because he was the designer. He knew what it all was supposed to be, he could put it back together the way it was and restore it to its original glory. Church, do you see the gospel in this? God has designed the world. It has broken. It's fallen off the table and shattered into a million pieces. Can I get an amen? It's shattered into a million pieces. And we have no reason, though, as the church to do this. (sighs) But many Christians live like that. Oh, the world. Oh, it's broken. Oh, it's an election year. (laughs) We walk around distraught like we don't know the designers coming back to fix the brokenness, church. He's coming back to put all of this back the way it was designed to be. Me and you restored of our sinfulness and flesh completely gone. That's going to happen someday. He's going to take every redeemed person and gather him into the new heavens and we're going to worship him for eternity. Why are we drooping? Why are we sad? Why are we distraught? Why are we fearful? Why are we doubtful? We're doubtful because we're human. And I get that. But church, don't droop. Lift your eyes and see that Jesus is the king and he's coming again. If we believe that, if we believe that, then why aren't we sharing it with the world? Why aren't we sharing it with your neighbor who's broken, saying, my life's in a million pieces. What am I supposed to do? You have the answer. I have the answer. The designer will fix the brokenness. And even the fact that you and I have been redeemed now is a sign that he is fixing brokenness. You and I were born into sin, and now by the grace of God alone, through Christ alone, through faith alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, we have been made new. That's a miracle, is it not? Man, I'm getting fired up. I'm sorry. But our unity in the church, this is so important, because as we understand who we are in God, and as we stand, understand who we are as the church together, our unity must begin in this room. And as our church becomes a united front for the gospel, it then flows outward into the world. A United, hopeful church. A, the world needs that. They don't need a droopy church. They need a hope-filled, Christ-centered church. Whew. Let's jump back into the text. So verse 17. How did Jesus do this? Well, he came and preached peace to those who were far off and to peace to those who were near. For through, though, for through him, we both again, Jew and Gentile, Paul is saying, both of us have access to the Spirit, in one spirit to the Father. You see, Jesus could have come and just judged the world and done it all then. he could have. He was God in flesh, John 1 14. but he didn't. He came, he preached peace, and all of that brings us into equal access, and so again, you don't need to talk to me to talk to God. you don't need a pope, a priest, a prophet, nobody. you have equal 24/ seven access through Jesus, with the spirit that lives in you, to talk to the Father. How often do you revel in that privilege? Remember that picture of the temple? You had to go through walls, you had to go through customs. I mean, you think going to the airport was bad. I mean, they, they couldn't get close without uh, the fear of death. Now you and I can just sit in our chair anywhere in the world and talk to God. How often do you revel in that embrace that and practice prayer, practice listening, practice being in his presence. So that's point number 1. <laughs> we are one body. That was all wrapped up in a point 1. Crazy, huh? Point number 2, you ready? These will go faster, I promise. Point number 2, we are a spiritual family. Okay? Look at verse 19. So then, so then's language like, okay, now that you've heard this, here's some implications. You are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You guys notice that beautiful contrast, this is the compare and the contrast, right? You went from being aliens to citizens of the kingdom. Sons and daughters of the king. We used to be aliens, right? We went from being strangers, these outsiders, nobody knows you, to being members of the household of God, God's family. Adoption has happened. And remember, adoption is the parent taking the initiative to go seek out that child, even though that child has done nothing to earn it, deserve it, or want it. The parent takes the initiative and says, I want you. To come into my family. That's what God has done for us, from strangers to members. We see this also in First Peter 2.10, when Peter says that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, we're part of the the family of God. We are a spiritual family together. And none of us has any more right to boast than the next, because how did you get here? If we've all been adopted, then there wasn't anything special about us. But there is something special about this family. And that's why Jesus calls it his bride. That's why I love that we sang that song, that we should be a bride, a family waiting for the groom. In our family, the spiritual family does not exist just for itself. It exists for the mission of God. And we see this beginning to take shape in verses 20 through 22. Take a look. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, all the New Testament, all the Old Testament coming together on the foundation, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom? hear that. That's a person in whom, meaning Christ, the whole structure, meaning all of us, are being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, do you notice the language? From the first part of this passage, Paul is using words like killing, destroying, and abolishing. In the second half of this passage, he's using words like grows, building, joined together, you see that? It's a beautiful contrasting thing there. So notice the cornerstone. Who's the cornerstone? Jesus. Now, you all know the importance of a cornerstone. Back in that day, it was a little bit more important. Now, we don't necessarily have cornerstones, big rock in the middle of our house, but that'd be kind of cool. But back then, when they were building these stone structures, the importance of laying that foundation was huge. But even more important than that was the cornerstone. Isaiah 28, 16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, of a, sure, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. See, Jesus is the cornerstone. And just like having that cornerstone is so important because every stone after it has to be aligned with the cornerstone so that it can be completely aligned and perfect as you build it. If you are off from that cornerstone, the higher you build, the riskier it gets. So in the very same way, Jesus has to be the center of our unity, the center of our spiritual family, the center of your spiritual life, and he is the center of this church. Little C and big C, he is the center of it all. Amen? So if he's the cornerstone of our united community, then everything revolves around him, yes? So then ask yourself the question today, are you aligned with Jesus? Are you aligned with him in all areas of your life? From finances to fitness, from politics, all these other things. Is Jesus the one that orients your life? Is Jesus the one that orients the way you think, the way you go? Is Jesus the one that orients and aligns the way that you treat other people? Is Jesus the one that is orienting the way you relate to other people in this room? I hope so. The second thing we notice in this last few verses is that we have gone from being dead in our sins, which is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 that we just read, but we've gone from being dead in our sins to being living stones in God's holy temple. And First Peter kind of explains this a little bit in more detail than Paul's section, but they are agreeing together. Second Peter 2, 4 through 5 says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. See, no stone is any more important than the next stone. We are all being built together into this beautiful spiritual house. It's for the Lord. It's for his glory. And where does the presence of God now live? He lives in every single living stone, me and you, amen? And so imagine this, all these little living stones have the presence of God are being built together into this beautiful temple here on the earth, metaphorically speaking, then this room together that's united has the presence of God in us, in us collectively that shines bright to the world. So I want you to hear this before we begin to wrap up today, that the church shines brightest when it stands united in Christ. We will shine bright in a dark, dark place when we stand united in Christ, united with one another, united in our mission, and then we are a beautiful shining light to the dark, dark world around us, and they're wondering where all the hope is, where all the peace is. Well, here's this beautiful living and breathing structure that lives, works, and plays all over the city of Des Moines. What a beautiful opportunity for them to find peace and hope in each of our lives, we see this corporate identity in this communal language in Second or in First Peter two nine. But you are a chosen race, that's plural. You are a royal priesthood, that's plural. A holy nation, plural. A people for His own possession. For what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And this leads me to my last and third point: is that we are agents of reconciliation. I'm gonna go through this real quick, but in John 17, Jesus is saying that he wants us to be perfectly one just as the him and the father are one so that the world may know that we've been sent by him and that the world can be loved by him. The church shines brightest when it stands united in Christ. Jesus and the father were one. Jesus prays that, that, that we together would be one. He prays that us and Jesus would be one. And in that oneness, It says, so that the world would know that he was sent. And we see this again, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul is illustrating what he's talking about here, 5, 17 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We've talked about that. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself. That's what Pastor Adam talked about last week and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, because of what we've just heard, he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through the pastor. Oh, wait, wait, does isn't what it says. God making his appeal through who? Us, does that just mean me and Mike and Adam, the pastors? No, 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 God makes his appeal to the lost and dying world through us. I'm a part of us, not just me, not just our staff. God makes his appeal. We are all ambassadors for Christ together. We have been entrusted with something. What if God came down and said, hey, I want to entrust this with you. Will you hold on to this for me for a second? Would you take that seriously? If God came down and said, I want you to hold on to this. I'm entrusting this to your care. Would we take that seriously? Well, this passage has said from the authority of the Bible that we have been entrusted with the message and the ministry. A lot of you know the message, but how many of you are engaged in the ministry? It's not just for me. We all, as ambassadors of Christ, have been entrusted with the message and entrusted with the ministry. We all have been called by God to be in the ministry. And that ministry is not this. This is a part of it for me. But the ministry is all of us being where we live, work, and play, and do business to share the message of reconciliation with people who are not reconciled to God. How are you doing at being an ambassador for Christ where you live, work, and play? How are you doing and are you actively sharing the gospel, telling people how they can be right with God, how they can be reconciled to God and have peace with Him? So these are our two primary application points today. We must be agents of reconciliation. We must. Again, Scripture does not leave room for this to be an option for you and I to consider. These are commands to be obeyed. If you don't believe me, there and you can read Jesus' words in all four Gospels and the Book of Acts that say that we must make disciples. This is not optional. And the world needs to hear this hope like we've talked about today. So take a step. Whatever your step is, don't worry about it. It's different than the other people's. But I encourage you, we are here to help you take those steps. That is the primary reason I moved here and took this job, is to equip and mobilize you to take steps, to be a disciple that makes disciples. I will give anything I can to help you. Please come and talk to me if you want help. The second application thing is we must pursue unity. More than ever, the church must stand united because everything when you leave these doors is going to exist to divide us. And if we are not united in this room, then the church out there becomes a broken temple with the stones all in a pile, all discombobulated. That doesn't make for a very good showing, does it? It doesn't speak to what God actually is doing in here, in us, in our transformation. Let me read you a quote, and then I promise we're almost done. Uh, Some anonymous commentator, I don't know who said it, said this about our unity. He said, our fallen instincts encourage us to build our identity on what distinguishes us, even from other believers. But Jesus exposes this self-centeredness of such a mindset. Our union with Christ brings a unity in Christ that transcends all secondary agreements Church, you have been redeemed. You have a union with Christ that should lead to a unity of believers that are also in Christ. How are you doing at living in unity with your brothers and sisters in this room? Don't make this ethereal. like is the church unified in, in, in Africa and Georgia? That's, that's a good question. Focus in here. How are you doing at being in unity with these people in this room? Because this is our little congregation. And there's others that are watching online. How are you doing being reconciled and being in unity with those that are in this body that might not be in this room? How are you doing at laying aside all those secondary disagreements that are many today, aren't they? How are you doing at laying those aside and say, no, those are not as important as our unity in Christ. And as brothers and sisters, our relationship and our, our identity in Christ is far more important than all the secondary things that we want to get worked up in today. Are you looking for issues that divide? Or are you celebrating things that unify? Church, the the unity, the identity, and the mission of the church is far more important than your preferences and opinions, including mine. Our unity is far more important that any theological nuances we want to talk about, any other political things we want to talk about, any other strategies of politics and pandemics, all of that is important to talk about. But those are secondary to the unity that we must pursue in Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ. Last question that pierced me this week as I wrote this, that God spoke to me and convicted me and led me to have to go and reconcile with a brother this very week. God said, and I'm going to share it with you, so you're welcome. Who do you love? What do you love more? God's family or being right? What do you love more? God's family or being right? And I'll confess, there's a lot of times I love being right. It feels good to be right, doesn't it? At least we think we're right. Right. Do we love God's family more than our own desire to to inflate our own ego and our pride? But imagine what a church would look like if we lived in that kind of unity, where we were fighting for each other. We were fighting for the unity and the reconciliation between one another. We are fighting to say, no, 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 go talk to that brother today. Go talk to that sister today. Make that phone call today because it's important, because it honors Christ and it reflects to the world. Imagine then what a united church that's reconciled to one another looks like and can do as we move out into the world as one united front to declare to the world that there is only one hope, there is only one peace in life and death, and it is Jesus Christ. Imagine what it would look like if we were one body, one spiritual family, sent as a family of believers on mission to be agents of reconciliation. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the truth of your word that pierces the pride and the arrogance in me, that pierces the excuses that we might have today. I pray that we would courageously embrace the truth and that we would not stiffen our necks and turn away and say, I don't like it, I'm not going to listen, I'm not going to apply. God, I pray that you would give us a spirit of humility. I pray that you would give us a spirit of courageous application to what you have been speaking to us today. Every single person in this room that is a, that is a, a believer in Christ, I believe God is hearing from you something specific. I pray that we'd be bold and courageous. I pray that you would help us to be a united front, a united church, one family, and that we would also be a family that's excited about telling the lost world how they can be redeemed in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who are maybe in this room or maybe watching online who are not Christians, I can't stop preaching even though it's already past time because I haven't shared the gospel with you. And here's the short version of it, is that if you are not a Christian and you are in this room or online, the Bible says that you stand condemned, you stand to face hell for eternity. That's because you're dead in your sins. You've not been reconciled. You don't have peace. The hostility with God and you still exists. But that can be removed and taken away and nullified as you repent of your sins and your rebellion and you trust and believe and have faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If that is you this morning, if you want to know what that means, what that looks like, you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but it's only possible in Christ. It has nothing to do with what you've done, or how moral you are has everything to do with what Jesus has done for you. So please, don't leave here. Don't uh, check out online. Talk to somebody. I'm going to be here at the end of the service. I'm going to be right up front, and then I will be in the guest reception. If you have questions, please, what you do with Jesus is the most important thing you could ever wrestle with in your entire life because it affects eternity. You can find a wealth of resources, including free downloads, videos, book recommendations, sermons, training opportunities, and more at my website, www.DisplayTheGospel.com.